0: This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at
1: michaeljfox.org.
2: You're listening to audio from one of our third Thursday webinars on Parkinson's research. In these webinars, expert panelists and people with Parkinson's discuss aspects of the disease and the Foundation's work to speed medical breakthroughs. Learn more about the third Thursday webinars at michaeljfox.org webinars. Thanks for listening. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. I'm Dr. Sonia Mather, co-chair of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, I have the pleasure of being your moderator today. As you know, the field of medical research continues to advance, and the area of Parkinson's disease is no exception to that. And in today's webinar, we're going to review the progress we've made in 2018. So let's get started. Joining me today is Dr. Andrew Sidoroff. He is director at the Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorders Center, chief of the Movement Disorders Division at University of Pennsylvania, and the co-principal investigator of the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative. Welcome, Dr. Siddharth.
3: Thank you. Nice to be here.
2: And Dr. Todd is the CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Formerly trained as a neuroscientist, he directs the organization's research strategy and is responsible for the Foundation's overall scientific and fundraising direction. Hi, Todd.
0: Hi. Glad to be part of this.
2: Glad to have you both here. So what will we be covering? Our exceptional panelists today will look at progress this year, what it means to the patient community, and how the science has advanced in a number of areas. Developing new treatments to manage symptoms of Parkinson's, with new on the market as well as those treatments that are getting closer to the pharmacy show. Therapies to slow down or stop Parkinson's, what we call disease-modifying therapies. Tests that are being developed to not only diagnose Parkinson's, but track the progression of the disease. Something I really believe is revolutionary. And also, look ahead to what we can expect in 2019. We've got a lot to cover over the next hour, so, so let's get started. Um, we're going to start by looking at what we call symptomatic therapy. There are a number of things that I'm struck by looking at this slide, having followed the direction of research over the past couple of decades. One of the biggest changes I've witnessed is this change in focus from the motor symptoms of this disease, which were really the focus at one time, not only the recognition of motor symptoms, but also their significant impact on the quality of life of patients. Andrew, I'm wondering if you could maybe take us through the first couple of treatments. One has already been approved, and the other two, which are hopefully close to landing in the hands of clinicians and patients. And those, those are directed towards very frustrating and building problem off periods. So how long will these, new, how will these new drugs help, and how long before patients can begin to use them?
3: So um, regarding uh, Xeomin, which is uh, a, a botulinum toxin strain A, Uh, It's actually effectively the same ingredient that's in um, the brand Botox, uh, and it's just another brand of the same toxin, and right now we have two botulinum toxins that are available for excessive drooling. Uh, One is botulinum toxin strain A, which is either uh, Dysport, Xeomin, or Botox are the three brands that are available in the U.S., Uh, and... um, and there's uh, myoblock, which is botulinum toxin strain B, uh, which is the other main strain that's available for drooling. Uh, so the the big advantage here is that Zymen was specifically approved by the uh, FDA for drooling, which means that it's likely to be covered by most insurers, especially Medicare. Uh, so it will it will be another option for um, uh, patients who, for whatever reason, haven't done well on other brands of of, of uh, of botulinum toxin. I think you'd expect the efficacy to be uh, similar to uh, what we've seen with the other brands of Botox specifically, uh, but there may be advantages in terms of availability. Uh, and uh, also, if the patients had a reaction to to one of the other brands, they might not have a reaction to Xeomin because the other constituents are a little different. Um, regarding the uh, inhaled carbidopa levodopa uh, and the thin film apomorphine, I think that my understanding is these are both well along in the FDA review process, and I'm hopeful that we'll see them uh, for patients even as early as the, sometime in the next year. Uh, I don't think either of them, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, Todd, are actually fully approved right now, but they're they're close to being approved, and they've the FDA has been reviewing them. Um, I think that, you know, obviously these off episodes are, um, in, you know, disabling for patients with Parkinson's disease who've had the disease for a long time. They can prevent people from wanting to go out because they're afraid they'll turn off and not be able to come, you know, get back from wherever they were. Um, And uh, the inhaled carbidopa levodopa is a totally novel mechanism that is absorbed through the lungs. The thin film apomorphine um, is a a, a, a sort of a tape that you put under your tongue, uh, and it's absorbed uh, directly through the mucous membranes, Um, very similar to the other formulations of apomorphine that are available now. But I think that they'll... They will both be um, new delivery systems for existing drugs and will be useful for patients.
2: That's in- incredible because the, the off symptoms, particularly, can really isolate patients. So that would be really great for somebody's life. Um, there are also a number of therapies still in various phases of clinical trials, and it's probably easiest to group them in terms of those directed towards motor symptoms and those being developed to treat non-motor symptoms. Um, in non motor symptoms. In the motor symptoms group, actually, a number are listed on this slide. Um, more symptoms, of course, are the hallmarks of this disease and represent a significant source of disability. One of the first ones is glutamate therapy. Um, Andrew, could you tell me what glutamate therapy is and and how it works?
3: Yeah. So, um, you know, everybody knows or not, I mean, most people who've had Parkinson's are familiar with the idea that the brain chemical called dopamine is really at the heart of why people with Parkinson's uh, have trouble with movement. But, it's really only part of the story, uh, and while dopamine, you know, dopamine and dopamine replacement remains probably the mainstay for treatment of motor symptoms with Parkinson's disease, uh, other neurotransmitters are definitely important, too, uh, and glutamate is a good example of this. Glutamate is the most prevalent uh, excitatory neurotransmitter uh, in the brain. Uh, and it's ubiquitous, uh, and it's also important in regulating dopaminergic activity uh, in uh, normal function and in Parkinson's disease. Uh, And there have been attempts at glutamatergic therapy, uh, and and the idea of glutamatergic therapy in Parkinson's, I should say, is that it would regulate medications like levodopa so that they work better, so that you'd have uh, better on time, on time without dyskinesia, uh, and uh, that's sort of that. That would be the place where these drugs would fit in. It's sort of people who are already on levodopa, and it would make the levodopa work smoother and better uh, in terms of better on time and on time without dyskinesia. An example of a glutam- glutamatergic therapy that's available now is amantadine, and amantadine uh, many people feel does both of these things. It just doesn't do it as you know. With, there's still unmet need to do these things better, and so there are new glutamatergic agents, which uh, modulate glutamate uh, transmission, um, and hope the hope is that they'll uh, work in combination with dopam, uh, levodopa and dopaminergic replacement therapy to give people with Parkinson's better quality of life.
1: And how far away are these from the patient's hands, I guess?
3: I think that we'll see clinical trials very soon. In fact, I think there are probably clinical trials in phase two that a, a small number of subjects uh, can participate in now. I think we're probably looking at uh, 18 months at the best for seeing these uh, more widely in clinic, maybe even a bit longer. There's a there's a bit of a longer time horizon for these therapies than for the other ones. You'll see clinical trials more and more, but I think as approved agents, Todd, what do you think? I, I would think we're two years off at least
0: yeah I would this is Todd. just to add, I would say, um, the the new therapies being spoken about here that are closest are the ones listed under the with FDA review. These have uh, already completed their clinical trials and are just now at the stage of presenting the data for approval. Um, the glutamate therapies, which are more experimental at this point, as Andrew mentioned, are entering the clinical testing phases, probably the earlier stages. Um, luckily, in some ways, since these, these treatments are looking for more acute benefit of the people um, with Parkinson's, they can progress more quickly through clinical trials, but it still takes time to recruit the patients and assess the outcomes. So those are definitely more um, delayed, I would say, a couple of years behind the ones that are now up for the approval, assuming that they all um, are showing success.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one drug that's been around for years and years and decades is levodopa. And it's they're listed here that they're offering new levodopa formulations. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about that, Andrew?
3: Um, sure. So uh, I think actually one of the uh, main themes that we've really seen in the last few years is uh, new formulations of levodopa with medications that are approved now, like Ritari and Duopa, uh, and I think that we're going to be seeing even new versions. There's a there's a new delayed release form of levodopa, which is uh, um, being tested in Israel mostly, uh, which um, looks like it could be promising. Sort of a in between uh, ritari and um, regular levodopa in terms of its duration of action. Uh, it's it's the 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 novelty of it is that the pill sort of deploys like an accordion in your stomach and releases the levodopa very slowly uh, mm-hmm. once, it's, once you swallow it. Um, and uh, then I guess we talked about the inhaled carbidopa, levodopa. There's also a, um, a levodopa pump, which is being tested. Uh, and uh, all these are, I mean, the problem with levodopa has never been that it didn't work well. It's always been that it, you have on-off after a while. And so these new delivery systems are really aimed at smoothing the ons and the offs out. And uh, I think you know, there's still, uh, unfortunately, you know, these even if it's an you know, old drug, it still needs to be tested and go through the FDA. So there's still a time lag there. But I think that these will, when they do reach the market, will help patients.
1: Well, that's exciting, actually, because you're right. Levodopa does work, but it's the ups and downs, the on's and off's that are the most bothersome. Um, and next are the non-motor symptoms. I mean, a list of non-motor symptoms is a long and diverse one. It affects almost every bodily system. And we know from patient surveys that they are in large part more bothersome and impact quality of life even more than motor symptoms. Todd, could you fill us in on the non-motor symptoms that are being targeted and how soon these may come to market?
0: Yeah, this is actually, I think, a very exciting area where the scientific community and research community is, is catching up with the patient community. And the patients have been expressing the impact of these symptoms for many years. And now we're actually seeing the research moving in this direction and um, making progress. So there are clinical trials under being um, underway now that are looking to target some of the non-motor symptoms within Parkinson's disease, such as cognitive dysfunction, some of the neuro neuro, um, behavioral challenges people might have, like anxiety or other um, psychological symptoms, and also the digestive symptoms like constipation. And there's really two approaches that are being used to um, develop treatments in this area. One is focused on um, what we would call repurposing or repositioning of existing medications. So testing drugs, that we already know can treat anxiety, for example, or digestive problems and see how they work in the context of Parkinson's disease. So these are medications that are already available um, and then now see if we can test them to show whether they have effectiveness on these symptoms within Parkinson's. And the other area where this is really getting a lot of interest is looking to develop new medications. Um, based on increased understanding of what might be the underlying causes of these symptoms in Parkinson's and see if we could develop treatments to address that aspect of these symptoms as well. But this is, I think, very pro- a promising area because there's much greater interest and activity in developing treatments against these non-motor symptoms. And I think it's a great example of where the patient voice and the community, the Parkinson's community voice, of highlighting the impact of these symptoms has now directly led to changes in direction in the research area.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely true. I think the patient voice and the patient community have spoken about the impact of these symptoms on quality of life. And, and the research community has listened, which is fantastic. Um, And that last one brings up the use of technology. I mean, something that impacts all aspects of life and medicine also benefits from those advances. Todd, can you explain what technology or virtual therapies are being proposed?
0: Yeah, so this is a really interesting new area. which, which is you're trying to leverage technology actually as a therapeutic. We've talked a, a lot about um, using technologies in the past webinars to, for tracking the disease. Could we use wearable sensors or smartwatches to really try to understand the disease better? But in this case, these are actually now trying to look at ways to use technology or leverage technology to expand the availability of treatments, so to develop new treatments. Um, and some of the trials that are going on, um, one, for example, is using um, video conferencing or sort of voice video um, interactions to to um, apply behavioral therapy to people. So one of the trials that um, we're involved in is looking at treating depression, which there are pharmacological or drug-based treatments for depression, but there's also behavioral therapy uh, that is used to treat a symptom like depression. Mm-hmm. And in this case, what they're experimenting with is to see could how effective could that behavioral therapy um, be for patients if it's done through a video conferencing type of system, which mm-hmm. would allow greater access to more patients um, than the current approach um, for this type of therapy. So it's very exciting, there's, there's great um, data already that the neurological exam can be conducted using what we'd call telemedicine, you know, virtual right. assessment to FAR. So this would be a real way to bring the therapy to the patients rather than have, make it difficult for patients to access access this type of therapy.
1: Well, absolutely, especially those with mobility issues or those that may not be in that kind of tertiary environment where they have access to, to good healthcare. So that's great. Um, this next slide, lists a couple of very interesting areas of research. The first, stem cells have a bit of a tumultuous history and have had some complications in the past. Todd, have the newer technologies overcome some of the initial limitations? I guess what were they initially? And um, could you describe where we're at now with this area of research?
0: Sure. This is a always been a very exciting area of research, particularly for Parkinson's disease, really based on the concept that we know uh, that many of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease are due to the specific loss of of cells um, in the brain of people with the disease, particularly those cells that make dopamine. And there's always been the promise of using stem cells to be able to develop and replace those dopamine cells that are lost in the disease. So the general concept would be that you could grow the stem cells in a laboratory using various um, molecular techniques, convert those stem cells into dopamine-producing cells, and then transplant those dopamine-producing cells back into the brain of someone with Parkinson's to replace the cells that have been lost in the disease. And so that concept is still the, the approach that's, you know, being tried to be developed with stem cells. One of the challenges historically that we found in the research in this area is that. Um, when we grow the cells in the laboratory, we can very much control the environment in which those cells are grown and can make particularly from embryonic stem cells. Uh, very, very robust numbers of dopamine producing cells. However, in the past when those cells were then transplanted into the um, animals to sort of look at how they would integrate into the brain and and perform, um, they would lose their, what we'd call lose their phenotype, meaning they would revert back to the stem cell phenotype and no longer have a very robust production of dopamine, which is what you'd want for this to be a Mm -hmm. therapeutic. So with that challenge, the investigators in this field sort of went back to basics back to the the techniques on how to grow the stem cells, how to design them to be dopamine producing cells. And there have been a number of advances that have moved this field forward. Um, One is improvements in the ability to engineer the stem cells into dopamine cells. And also an advance where not only can we use embryonic stem cells, there is now a new technology that's called induced pluripotent stem cells. And in this case, what can be done is taking a skin cell or a blood cell from an adult and using techniques to convert that back into a stem cell, and then make that stem cell into a dopamine-producing cell. So, both of these approaches are now moving forward, and with improved technology, there's now been pretty significant success in in um, transplanting these cells into animal models of the disease, and the cells maintaining their phenotype, meaning that in those animal models, they're still able to produce dopamine at levels that would be beneficial. So based on those discoveries, there's now a few groups, one you uh, may have seen in the news recently in Japan, and some coming up soon in the United States, that are moving forward with stem cell treatments into clinical trials. And again, the goal here would be to take these engineered stem cells, transplant them into the brain of someone with the disease, and hope that those cells now make enough dopamine to revert some of the symptoms. So, But there's been a long, as you mentioned, a long path here. But right now, I think a lot of the early roadblocks have been overcome. And now we're back into clinical testing.
1: And Todd, would you say that's an example of sort of precision medicine or personalized medicine in that? When when you say that you can take a blood cell or a skin cell, are you talking about from the person you're going to treat with the cell to help with rejection, or is that in general?
0: Yeah, so I think that's one of the possibilities with this. So it could be personalized in that um, you could, in fact, take the cell from the same person that you would do the transplant Mm -hmm. back in you know, with. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think the other way that this technology is really being used in a kind of personalized way is that you also can take, let's say you took a blood cell from a a patient and then converted it back to a stem cell and made it into different types of brain cells. You also now could understand and test medications, potential medications. Against Mm -hmm. the biology that's happening in that individual because you've taken the cell from the person with the disease. So that's also being used now as a drug development tool because we still are challenged in Parkinson's disease compared to a disease like cancer where we can't um, take the biopsy of the diseased Mm -hmm. part of the body because um, no one would recommend brain biopsy to anybody. So we have to come up Mm -hmm. with surrogate ways to understand the biology that's happening in the disease and the stem cell technology, in addition to being a therapy itself, has the potential to really explode the science around the understanding of Parkinson's disease.
1: That's that's really impactful, but Andrew, um, I just wanted to ask you about stem cells. Have have any of your patients come in with questions about the medical tourism that exists around stem cell therapy, where they make promises of successful treatment and often a cure? And what do you advise them? Uh,
3: yes, yeah, so I often I, I think that I get a question about stem cells and specifically this idea of medical tourism. Um, once um, once a maybe. Once every other week, very very often, it's it's on people's minds for sure, and I'm very conservative about the advice that I give patients. I think that there's just there's a there's a real risk for unscrupulous um, operators uh, doing this sort of thing. There are, I think, as as uh, Todd mentioned, there's a there's a very uh, you know reputable clinical trial going on in Japan right now, Um, and there I think there's there's work in other countries as well, Uh, but. I really discourage people from going to places studies that are, are being done in universities, that don't I like to know about them in advance. I think it's very reasonable for my patients to like get a consent form and bring it back and I'd have a look at it if they're interested. But right. like going someplace where somebody's gonna inject stem cells uh like into your into your vein, for example, uh, where we certainly don't think they would work. You know, you really need to be injected uh into the brain where they're gonna to more likely to connect, uh, right. these sorts of things. Uh, patients, you know, patients are, you know, are, are hopeful that this sort of thing will work, and I think that there's a real risk there. And I, I think that, you know, reputable scientists, reputable universities, talk to your doctor about it. I, I wouldn't just go and sign up without checking a lot first.
1: You know, I, I agree. I think you're right. I think sometimes people prey upon the. The desperation of some patients, and certainly stem cells sound like an exciting area of of research, but it doesn't sound like we're quite there yet. Um, The next on this slide is gene therapy. From what I understand, gene therapy is using genes as a treatment and providing, I guess, genetic instruction Cell need to change their fate. Is is that correct, Todd? And how does this actually work and how far along are we in this field?
0: Yeah, so that's a good uh, explanation. Basically, what the gene therapy approaches is, is to use different molecular techniques to get uh, the part um, per- cells within the brain to make the therapy that you're interested in. So rather than inject the therapy or make it into a drug, what you do in this case is using different molecular techniques is you actually get the brain itself to, to generate the therapeutic molecule that you're hoping Mm -hmm. to produce. So it's a very um, innovative type of approach. And Parkinson's disease is actually one of the diseases that's pretty far ahead in gene therapy um, in that there are very uh, handful of clinical trials that are ongoing. And particularly the ones that are furthest along are looking at ways to get the brain to make more dopamine using the gene therapy so you would have a surgical procedure a one-time kind of injection of the different molecular machines and then it's been demonstrated in, in animals then um, after the fact that brain that gets exposed to this is able to make more dopamine so it's a very exciting approach um, because it's uh, incredibly innovative from a molecular science perspective, and the idea right. then is that the brain becomes the source of the, of the therapy.
2: So, so the
1: it's the injection actually happens into the brain, though, into the area.
0: That's the right. Area the brain. Yeah, I mean, in right. Parkinson's, it does. In other diseases, it, it happens wherever you're looking to make the therapy um, be be developed, and it allows a very localized. The, with the exception of the, the surgical procedure, after the fact, it's a very localized then production of the therapy. So one of the things that gene therapy has allowed holistically is sort of a redefinition of the different types of science and biology you could target as a therapy, because there could be certain um, therapies that you really can't have the being exposed to the entire body because of side effects. But if you can use something like gene therapy where you get a very targeted production of that therapy, you could have the benefit without some of the systemic side effects. So it's a very exciting new area um, and is, you know really showing a lot of potential. And um, there's uh, at least one Parkinson's trial that is in pretty late stage development that we should be getting results within the next year on how um, beneficial it's been for Parkinson's. And there there have been trials in the past using gene therapy in Parkinson's, particularly to try to develop um, treatments for what are called neurotrophic factors. These are proteins that can help brain cells to survive and behave appropriately. Um, So there's a lot of at least safety data in Parkinson's. Those trials were not successful from a clinical perspective, but there's a lot of safety data showing that this, um, in, in injecting this molecular machinery for gene therapy into the brains of people with Parkinson's has not shown any adverse effects um, in past trials. So there's a lot of potential for expanding um, the types of therapies that could be developed using gene therapy.
1: Well, It seems like these biological therapies are really exciting. We have to keep an eye on them for sure. Um, The next slide shows us those therapies that are currently in clinical trials that are directed towards slowing or stopping the progression of Parkinson's disease, what we call disease-modifying trials. And looking at this slide makes me hopeful because there are a fair number of potential treatments and trials at this time they seem to be directed towards a variety of targets and outcomes, some towards alpha nuclein, which we'll hear about. Um, some clinical trials are working on co- what's occurring with those certain genetic mutations. And even though these mutations are found in a small percentage of Parkinson's patients, we'll learn how these results may help the global Parkinson's community. But let's start with the top one, repurposed drugs, which I, I believe, Todd, you explained already, but they're drugs that have already been approved and in use for other medical conditions, such as blood pressure, diabetes, or cancer, now are being investigated for use in Parkinson's disease. Andrew, I see there are eight treatments in phase two and one which must be getting closer because it's in phase three. Could you tell us generally what types of drugs these are?
3: So, um, for repurposed drugs, um, yeah, there's a whole there's a range of them. Um, some are a, a diabetes drugs. In fact, a number of them are, um, and uh, that this has uh, definitely been a, an area. The uh, one that's gotten the most attention, to my mind, is one called Exenatide. Uh, which is a was originally developed for diabetes and now is being tested as being repurposed for Parkinson's disease. There's um, one called uh, ambroxol, uh, which is uh, being uh, which was developed actually to clear mucus, as it turns out, uh, but has an effect on reducing the amount of of glucose uh, which is uh, is a as a molecule which is involved in Parkinson's pathology, especially in people that are carriers of the uh, the GBA mutation, Uh, and then uh, I think the one that's farthest along is probably nilotinib, which is a cancer drug, uh, which acts through a pathway which coincidentally is implicated in Parkinson's disease, and this is, uh, there was a small single center trial that looked promising. It came out of Georgetown about two years ago, and there's a large multi-center effort uh, underway now uh, to try to replicate the effects that were seen in Georgetown, whether it pans out or not I think is uh, an open question, but these are just three examples. I think you know, obviously the uh, question about whether repurposed drugs work in terms of do they help people with Parkinson's reduce their symptoms or delay progression, that is an unanswered question and we really don't know that at all. That's why they're being tested. The nice thing about repurposed drugs is we do have some information about whether they're safe because they've been used in other indications, Sometimes in, in thousands of patients, we do have a good sense of what, uh, what the dose range, which is safe, is. And so it's a little easier to go ahead and use these drugs in, with confidence in trials, knowing that we don't know if they work or not, but we do know probably that the doses we're going to try won't cause harm. So that's uh, where we are with
0: repurposed drugs.
1: And Andrew or Todd, you can jump into, why, why do these drugs actually have to go through clinical trials at all if they're already approved in their used for other illnesses?
0: So I'll just jump in on that. I think there's really two things that are uh, hoping to be accomplished from these trials and is both the efficacy and the safety. So while certain drugs are in the um, might be available, um, we actually always still need to be careful to know how safe they are, what doses could be used in people with Parkinson's. So example of one of the drugs that um, Andrew mentioned is a cancer drug. So there's a different safety profile for cancer drugs than there may be for a drug drug that people have to take chronically in a a long-term disease like Parkinson's. Or it could be that a certain drug is approved and has been developed for young people, pediatric drugs. And just because it's available in young people doesn't mean that we automatically know that it's safe at the same doses in people in the demographic of Parkinson's disease. Um, So I think that always has to be still looked at. It's a very important um, aspect that just because a drug is available doesn't mean it has been thoroughly tested for its safety in people with Parkinson's disease. And given that, we still wanna make sure that every drug that people take have risk benefits. There's really no drugs that are available that have no safety issues. You also wanna confirm and understand the efficacy. Does the drug actually work for people with Parkinson's disease? So that's the other um, aspect of these trials and at what dose do we need to give the drug in order for it to work? Because it could be that the drug's available but it's only being given at a very low dose. And in order to get a benefit for Parkinson's, we're not even able to get people the, the drug at the dose that is required. So they can move quickly into clinical trials because we really don't have to do these types of drugs. We don't have to do a lot of the basic preclinical safety because that's usually been accomplished mm-hmm. already, um, but we still need to do um, the clinical testing to make sure we understand that the the benefits outweigh the risks of any of these drugs.
3: Yeah. And I, I would just, I, I agree. I, I didn't mean to represent that these drugs were safe. I just meant that some of the very early phase safety testing is done and you can move into the phase, the middle phase trials sooner. I would also say that I have patients who are taking, for example, at isratapine uh, mm-hmm. just the, as a prescription uh, or coenzyme Q10 is a great example, you know, a probably, you know, very, very widely used and probably not much of a toxicity footprint. But, you know, we really don't know whether these drugs work or not. And anytime you take something that effectively for no reason, it's probably not a good idea. So I think that uh, I I generally, in my practice, don't encourage people to to use these drugs sort of in a speculative way, you know, hoping that they might work. Because I think that, uh, you know, the clinical trials need to be done
0: first.
1: Right. I guess unless they have a clinical condition that requires them and then maybe that would be um, a reason.
0: Yeah, if you already
1: have Gavetes a reason to, to be taking the drug. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. 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 Um, yeah.
1: Wouldn't, wouldn't stop. Yeah. Um, one thing I've noticed which would not have been the case when I started this journey well over 20 years ago and even 10 years ago is the targets that we're looking at. They've likely been skewed towards dopamine replacement but not the pathology of the disease itself and trials directed towards alpha synuclein are an example of how things have changed. Andrew, could you please explain in general terms what aspects of alpha-synuclein these treatments are directed towards and what they hope to accomplish, and maybe a little bit about alpha-synuclein in in general.
3: Yeah, sure. So um, I think that I'm always impressed that my patients know about alpha-synuclein. I think that we always knew, patients always knew about dopamine, but now they know about alpha-synuclein too. Uh, And alpha-synuclein is uh, a protein that occurs normally in the brain, um, and we don't know exactly what it does, actually. Its normal function is not known. But what is known is that in Parkinson's disease, it's probably the the main protein involved in Parkinson's pathology. So it's the uh, main component of Lewy bodies, which are uh, always almost always seen in degenerating neurons in patients with uh, Parkinson's disease. Um, and it's also known that in relatively rare families that have mutations uh, in the alpha-synuclein gene and sometimes even uh, cases where they have uh, genetic mutations lead them to have uh, extra copies of the alpha-synuclein gene, that those genetic mutations are very likely to produce Parkinson's disease. So these two lines of evidence that alpha-synuclein is almost always seen uh, in in, in, uh, pathology specimens from Parkinson's disease and that mutations in the gene uh often cause parkinson's disease in families where the, there are mutations um have been two really strong pieces of evidence that alpha synuclein is at the heart of what causes parkinson's disease and generally it's thought that there's too much alpha synuclein and when there's too much it's it what we say we call it misfolds which means that it mm-hmm. um Changes from its normal normal shape to an abnormal shape which uh, can 't be eliminated from cells and builds up and effectively uh, forms like sort of a, a, a i call it brain garbage that inside the mm-hmm. the cells so the cells can 't function and ultimately leads to cell dysfunction and death and so just to summarize, synuclein is central to the to parkinson 's pathology and probably too much synuclein and too much misfolded synuclein that can't be removed from cells is really at the core of why cells are become dysfunctional and die with Parkinson's. And so leading into that, the, the main thrust of, of alpha-synuclein therapy is directed at trying to reduce the amount of alpha-synuclein and remove the existing sort of misfolded, aggregated synuclein from cells so that they can function better and survive better.
1: So these trials that are, are I guess there's seven trials they say right now that are in clinical evaluate, under clinical evaluation, are those sort of directed at different points in the alpha-synuclein story? Are some directed towards clearing the garbage or others directed towards it not forming in the first place? Or
3: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So there are agents that are meant to prevent the synuclein from aggregating in the first place. Aggregating just means mm-hmm. building up into clumps where it can sort of mm-hmm. hard to get rid of it. Uh, And then there are several large trials and uh, several, uh, maybe three or four uh, big pharma efforts that are directed at removing the uh, already existing alpha-synuclein using uh, what we call passive immunotherapy, which is basically antibody infusions, antibodies that have been specifically developed to target uh, alpha-synuclein and then in this way harness the immune system to remove the extra misfolded alpha-synuclein. In addition to this, there's actually a uh, alpha-synuclein vaccine which is being tested uh, in an earlier stage, and the idea there is to get the body to develop its own antibodies against alpha-synuclein and use native antibodies to uh, remove the alpha-synuclein. So, but this immunotherapy, uh, either through vaccination or through uh, IVIG, you know, immunoglobulin infusions, is probably the main way that people are thinking about remove alpha-synuclein. It's really very similar to the efforts to remove the amyloid plaques uh, using antibodies that are being tested now in Alzheimer's disease.
2: Right.
1: So all, all sorts of approaches to the one problem, which seems to be alpha-synuclein. Um, next yeah. on the slide are the studies into treatments directed towards specific genetic mutations that can lead to Parkinson's disease. Todd, could you please first explain um, why we're studying genetic mutations that are sort of only... In, in a small percentage of people with Parkinson's disease and what we can discover in these trials that can be generalized to the broader patient community? Yeah, so this is
0: when you mention what's changed the most kind of in the last 10 to 15 years in Parkinson's, it really has been the role of an appreciation of the role of genetics in the disease and has led to the discovery of these specific genetic changes in genes like GBA and LRRK2 as causal factors in uh, percentages of Parkinson's disease. And as you mentioned, it's not that Lurk 2 or GBA are found in the majority of cases of Parkinson's. It's you know a small less than 10% of all the cases of Parkinson's may be caused by these genes. But what is really exciting about this is um, in trying to really develop true, truly transformative treatments, the best things that we could target is what is the underlying cause, the underlying trigger of the entire process of the disease. And if we could figure out a way to target that trigger and cause and intervene on it, we have the potential to stop the process, stop the biological process that's leading to the disease and leading to the progression of the disease. So that's why there's such great interest in looking at genes like GBA and LERC2 because they are very specific indicators of what might be causing cells to degenerate in in parkinson's disease so there's two things that are exciting about this Um, and one just to go back to a question you you asked before about personalized medicine this is an area where you really are getting to the concept of personalized medicine where uh, companies are developing specific drugs to correct the deficit in these genes and the trials that are being run currently are looking for individuals with Parkinson's disease who carry those genetic changes. So you're really targeting very specifically an individual who has a known biology that has changed and then intervene on that biology. This is much more akin to what's being done now in diseases like cancer, where they really understand molecularly what's happening to that individual and then try to use um, therapies very specifically engineered against that molecular change so that's one very exciting concept and aspect of these and seeing that they've reached the clinic and are moving ahead is also exciting the other point is the point you were making which is as we've uncovered these changes that are leading to these limited number of cases in parkinson's what we're finding is that as we go back to the laboratory and study the impact of these genetic changes, we're understanding that the same biology, the same molecular pathways, may be involved in a much larger percentage of Parkinson's patients than we first thought. So while other individuals may not have the same genetic mutation, it seems that the same impact on the biology is being found in a broader number of Parkinson's patients, meaning mm-hmm. that these therapies that are being developed initially to target the more limited populations of individuals with the genetic mutation may really have the potential to impact the broader Parkinson's population. So
2: right.
0: it really shows how you know these, maybe what may seem like limited or nuanced genetic discoveries are really impacting the entire field with great potential for the entire Parkinson's population.
1: Well, it certainly sounds like that. sounds like it's expanding our knowledge of this disease and that the the pathology then, our understanding of that disease can then be generalized to everybody and benefit everyone. So that's, that's really exciting. Um, so the next slide addresses an area I'm really excited about, and that's finding a mark for this disease because I think if we can discover a test to accurately diagnose and track Parkinson's, It will, in my opinion, revolutionize how we do research and ultimately how we manage patient care. So the uh, PPMI, or Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, is a landmark study um, that the foundation has taken on. And, Andrew, I know you've been intimately involved with it. Can you just sort of maybe describe what the term biomarker means, what we're looking for, and what areas may be targeted for measurement, and also how PPMI has evolved over the past, I guess, more than five years and what we've learned?
3: Yeah, sure. So that's a few things. So uh, yeah. to start out with, a a biomarker uh, is some ob- objectively measured characteristic, and, and that means something that usually comes out of a lab, like a like you know your like a your glucose level in your blood, for example, would be an example of a biomarker. Uh, uh, but so would a uh, an MRI scan of your brain also be a biomarker. So some it's usually a test that's objectively measured as contrasted to something that your doctor might examine uh, in on a physical exam finding that you might have in the office or something, a symptom that you might report. So it's, it has, it usually has to do with some kind of machine or technology producing the results. It's usually quantitative um, and uh, it's usually, for that reason, it's said to be objective because it's free of sort of the human factor as much as possible, although, you know, it, there's always a little bit of human factor. Uh, and biomarkers can be used in a range of ways for better diagnosis. Um, you know, does a person have Parkinson's or not, for example, or is it due to something else? Uh, for a prognosis, you might get a test that when you get diagnosed, and it could give you an idea of whether you have a you know a mild case or a more severe case. Uh, and, all, and also for tracking progression. And the last thing that can biomarkers can be used for among, I think, the main things uh, is for looking for a response to therapy. So this happens all the time that you get like a, a blood test to make sure that your uh, diabetes medicine is working, for example, or you have your blood pressure checked, which is actually a biomarker to make sure that your blood pressure medicine is working. But it'd be really terrific in the case of these um, new drugs that are targeted for against GBA or LARC-2, for example, uh, or Sinuclein, if we could have a, biomarker readout that could tell us almost immediately whether the drug was going to work or not in an individual person, and this would greatly accelerate the development of drugs because you wouldn't have to wait uh, years uh, to know whether you're on the right track or not, which is the case now. Um, And so it would accelerate drug development. And so switching gears to what PPMI, the, the real goal of PPMI is to find biomarkers that will accelerate drug development. Uh, in just the way I was talking about a minute ago mm-hmm. and p p m i is i think i have been lucky enough to be involved in it um uh, recently um and actually you know it, as a site investigator from the beginning and it's um and I'm always impressed that when you hear people the outside of the 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 parkins community they talk about p p m i as being a landmark study uh and I think that it really has that external status it's um been going on i think since 2011 now um and it's scheduled to go all the way through 2023 uh, now and i guess it could always be extended so it's a very long duration study it involves i think a, almost a thousand participants now if you count or maybe actually more i think it's just over 1000 participants when you count the various cohorts and it started out with about 400 parkinson patients and about 200 healthy age match controls. And it's been expanded. Um, the, the main expansion really has been in the area of genetics, where there's been an additional 600 subjects that were added that had either genetically determined forms of Parkinson's due to LARC2, GBA, or alpha uh and also a relatively similar number of um, people who carried these genes but were unaffected uh, by Parkinson's when they were enrolled. And obviously they're mm-hmm. uh, at risk. Uh, and I think that we learn um, we learn new things from PPMI all the time. There are um, literally a hundred, over hundreds of publications that have used PPMI uh, data uh, that are in the medical literature and more all the time. That number grows exponentially year by year. Um, and um, drug companies are using PPMI data to plan their trials. Uh, and... A number of different biomarkers are being explored Mm -hmm. in the context of PPMI ranging from um, improved dopaminergic imaging, uh, better ways to use existing dopaminergic imaging like DASCAN, CSF-based biomarkers, uh, and also really high-tech things like uh, gene profiling, uh, gene expression, um, and uh, uh, now the latest thing is to look at the use of um, sensors to measure uh, People's—they're like wearable sensors that you can use to measure people's tremors and walking speed and so forth as they go about their daily activities at home. Hopefully, to get a better sense of how they people really with Parkinson's really function when they're in their normal environment. So, uh, PPMI is uh, sprawling, long-standing, and uh, is contributing in ways we expected and also ways we didn't expect.
1: But I think also PPMI is sort of an example of the collaboration that the Fox Foundation. Um, pursues, as well as the sharing of information, because it has been used by so many people all over the world, the data that's been collected.
3: I was going to disagree. I think the, uh, the thing that people may not realize is that almost all PPMI data is available to the public uh, in real time, like almost as it's collected. Uh, and it, wow. it's used there. The, I can't, I've lost track of how many times the data has been downloaded, but it's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times.
1: Wow. And so this leads us into our last area of discussion looking ahead to the upcoming year. And Andrew, building on what you just discussed about PPMI, could you tell us how this initiative will help us in the areas not only early diagnosis but development of preventive therapies? Because if we diagnose it early in someone, is, is there a, a follow-up that we, we have in place or will it help us develop that follow-up?
3: Yeah, so that's a really good question, and this is something I think the field is uh, struggling with a little bit, uh, but definitely an emerging concept. Uh, there's a general feeling that uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, in general, and this is true for Parkinson's disease, just like it's true for a lot of other medical, virtually all medical conditions. So, if it were possible to identify people who had Parkinson's uh, at the very beginning of the disease, rather than waiting until the symptoms are full-blown and they come to the doctor uh, and you were able to use a a therapy like an anti-synuclein antibody if they worked or um, a a drug that's targeted at one of these personalized medicine uh, approaches so um, that these drugs would work better if they were started earlier Uh, and and so this is a it's a theme that's emerging I think because we don't have the therapies in place yet uh, to really test it but across neurodegeneration among Alzheimer's experts and Parkinson's experts, there's a, I think, a strong feeling that earlier therapy would work better when there's more uh, dopaminergic neurons that are still healthy and could be saved. And so this leads to the question of, like, how can we find people early as possible in the course of diagnosis? And there's two main approaches. Um, One is that, you know, people usually, I think people on the phone would probably agree to this, that they wait... Maybe uh, six months, a year, two years before they get diagnosed, um, and this can certainly be improved. And there's um, research going on now that looks at how uh, mild early signs that are detectable in the clinic could be uh, picked up and a diagnose a correct diagnosis could be made uh, sooner. Um, and then the other thing, which is quite novel really, is um, that probably the injury to the dopamine neuron starts three, five, ten years before any symptoms at all are apparent. And this would really be the ideal time to step in and short-circuit the disease process before it really takes hold. And new research is looking at ways to do this, and this is something I think you'll hear a lot more about in the next few years.
1: Excellent. Next, we're looking at environmental and lifestyle factors. It's been said in the case of chronic illnesses, genetic loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. Todd, do you agree with this analogy? And what work in this area can we look forward to in the next year?
0: Yeah. Um, so really what we're looking at now um, in the in the role of environment is really twofold. One is exactly what you said, which is clearly not all cases of Parkinson's are explained by genetics. And even when there are... Um, Different people that have the same genetics. They both don't wind up with Parkinson's. So there is some interplay between the environment and genetics, and we're looking at things um, that might be in the environment that could lead to a causal factor for Parkinson's. Things like pesticides, other exposures that, um, you know, and when you think about things like prevention, there could even be things in the advocacy realm that could be done to try to get some of these chemicals out of the environment. The other thing that we're looking at though, when you think about environment and lifestyle is that not all treatments have to be drugs that go through the FDA process. And we're we're gonna use our um, Fox Insight platform, which is a way to reach you know, thousands and thousands of people with Parkinson's to try to understand better what are people doing behaviorally with their lifestyle that could be impacting the disease. Um, or even can we uncover new Reposition drugs, you know, that are being looked at in other disease indications that could be beneficial to Parkinson's. Many people, for example, may have just seen this paper that came out recently that looked at appendix and the removal of the appendix and the impact that might have in Parkinson's. So it's really to try to do a more holistic look at some of these lifestyle uh, other factors that, that maybe are things we could do something about more quickly than having to push something all the way through the FDA right. pipeline.
1: And, and lastly, Todd, what's coming specifically down the pipeline in terms of the new therapies and like which studies are wrapping up? What what are we expecting from those? Studies? So
0: I think the most exciting thing we're looking for early in the year, we mentioned that we started this. Uh, discussion today with these drugs that are up to the FDA approval, and we should find that out in the first quarter of the year, and a number of the other symptomatic trials will be reporting results um, in the beginning or first half of 2019. And we should be, by the end of next year, learning about some of those synuclein trials that Andrew mentioned and what came out of those. Um, we're also continuing to see really significant investment from the pharmaceutical industry in this area. Um, And we just highlighted here many people, we started the year by hearing that Pfizer was pulling out some of their resources from neuroscience and we end the year now knowing that they've invested along with others into a new company to keep moving the Parkinson's program forward. So in general we still see a lot of momentum in this area and you know obviously we want things to move as fast as possible so we can get these results.
1: And we've talked about so much today, had so much information. If I had to pin you both down to what the most important advance in PD research will be in 2019, what you're most hopeful about for the upcoming year, what would you say, Andrew, then and Todd? or
3: uh, So I would, sort of, it's sort of a, a wish list, I suppose, but the, the two things that I would single out are that we'll get some inkling of positive results from anti anti-synuclein antibodies it may be at the very end of the year uh, or maybe at the very beginning of next year but I think that that would be really exciting and that's something I'm looking forward to and then the other thing that I think is always and you mentioned it earlier on is uh, whether we'll have a alpha-synuclein PET tracer at some point and that would be a tremendous advance if that were to happen so those are things that I'm hoping for the most.
1: Thank you and Todd,
0: Um, you know, I'll put mine in the similar two categories. I just mentioned one. I'm very excited and hopeful that at least one, if not both of the new um, therapies we mentioned will not only be approved, but be able to reach patients and affect their lives. Um, It's a lot of research that went behind those. So it'll be very exciting to see the tail end of that and then the actual outcome. And then I'm very excited about uh, hearing about the trial results of these genetically based treatments, the LERC2 and the GBAs, because I think if those are successful, it will set a new standard for how we could really develop transformative treatments for the disease that are targeting the actual triggers of the disease process.
1: Excellent. On your screen now, you'll see a number of initiatives, Fox Insight, Fox Trial Finder, uh, Team Fox, and these are all ways that you all who are listening can get involved and help advance the science, help us get closer to the, our end goal. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today, and thank you, Dr. Andrew Sidaroff and Dr. Todd Scherer, for sharing your expertise. One last thought. Um, being hopeful about the future is an important way of coping with a chronic illness like Parkinson's disease. But I think it's also important to ground that hope in science as well. And it is my hope that you are even more optimistic after our time together because, as you've heard, it is indeed a very exciting time in Parkinson's research in our search for better treatments and that elusive cure. But until next time, be well. Thank you very much.
0: This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.